listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Today, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We continue a year-long study of the book of Ephesians and a series entitled, When Two Shall Become One, by looking at the subject of marriage. Think about, think about this with me. There's really three institutions that are directly addressed in the Bible. Direct, specific instructions only to three institutions. The government, marriage, family, and the third of which is the church. Now you may run a business, you may run a museum, a hospital, and there's principles in the Bible to guide you but you won't find direct instructions on how to run as important as it might be a hospital as you will with marriage. In fact, as we think about marriage, not only is it specifically given direction and instruction in the Word of God, and you're told how to make a marriage flourish, but beyond that, we know that a wedding opens the Bible and closes the Bible. It's by a wedding, Adam and Eve, that the Bible opens and it's a wedding, Christ and his church, at the conclusion of the story. So marriage is God's idea, and it's this big, big deal, and we want to get it right. Ephesians chapter 5, look with me, beginning in verse 20, 21 as we read the Word of God together. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, but as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. This is the reading of God's Word. May God bless the reading of His Word. Americans love marriage. We love the idea of marriage. On average, two million couples every year will tie the knot. They'll put the rings on. Speaking of rings, on average, I'm told, some 17 tons of gold is melted together to form wedding rings annually. We love weddings. We love marriage. Now, sometimes we love the ideal of marriage more than the reality of marriage. Sometimes we hope for Camelot but experience calamity. And whenever I think about the reality of marriage and I sort of grin, I always have to think about country and western music because sometimes in the lyrics of those songs it tells it so poetically and so frankly and candidly. In fact, I'll give you three or four of my favorite and say my most favorite for last. Mel Tillis, some of you are not old enough to remember Mel Tillis. Mel Tillis would sing back in the day, how come your dog don't bite nobody but me? Dina Carter, a little more recent, did I shave my legs for this? And there's a whole new genre of country songs about revenge for infidelity husbands. Uh, there's one by Miranda Lambert that speaks about there's no lash extensions, eyelash extensions in prison, nor is there wax treatments in prison. So evidently the idea is they're going to back off killing the cheating husband, but my all-time favorite one, my all-time favorite is Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn, 
you're the reason our kids are so ugly. That is the number one <laughs> country western song. We laugh at those, and as we come to the idea of marriage, I want you to be aware of a couple things that research tells us. First, within one mile of where you're sitting right now, one mile, 44% of all children are being raised by single mothers. Let's just let that sink in for just a second. Within one mile of where we are right now, 44% of all children are being raised by single mothers. As we look at marriage, we compare some of the trends of marriage in 1960 to 2012. A couple things I want you to be aware of here. When you look at the graph that's on the screen for you there, you're seeing the number of people married at the age of 25 in 1960 as opposed to 2012. Quick snapshot of this, one of every 10 people in 1960 were married at the age of 25. Today, that's one in five. One in five. Only one in five. So you're seeing that we're marrying less. We're marrying less and we're delaying marriage, which helps me bring this next one. The average age for both women and men who marry in 1960, for women it was age 20. Men it was age 23. In 2012 it was age 27 and age 29 for men. So we're nearly a decade, well, seven years for women approximately six to seven years for men. This next graph helps us talk about cohabitation, which is increasingly popular. About 40% of all children born in the state of Texas this past year were born to unmarried mothers. 40%. Now what we know is this. Within five years, if they're married or whatever relationship status they have, within five years, they're split up within five years. Of an unmarried, if you have a child unmarried, within five years, research tells us you've split up from your partner, the one you're living with, your husband, whatever it is you want to call. Again, cohabitation. Now, cohabitation is really popular. Living together is really popular. One, because it's thought it's the training wheels for a proper marriage. Training wheels for a bike, Cohabitations thought that I'll get marriage right if we live together and we can try it. And coming as this generation is so cynical from their parents' marriage, you can begin to understand it. But secular research is saying, not Christians, secular research, Rutgers University, University of Virginia National Marriage Project, they're telling us that cohabitation decreases your chance at a successful marriage. Perhaps one person put it best. He was speaking to Gallup in a survey. He said, quote, everyone I know who's gotten married quickly and failed to live together first, and failed to live together first, has gotten divorced. It's a really popular view. The problem is there's a substantial body of evidence that indicates that those who live together before marriage are more likely to break up after marriage. If you live together before marriage as opposed to just marrying, you're much more likely, according to the research, to be divorced. Divorce is higher for those who cohabitate. In fact, if you want to have a divorce in your life, research says here's the quickest way to do it. Get married around the age of 18 or before, drop out of high school, have a baby before you marry, 
and you are the highest probable statistic couple to be divorced. If you want to do everything statistically possible to delay, if not avoid a divorce, then be reasonably well-educated, secular research tells us, have a decent income, come from an intact religious family, and marry after the age of 25 without having a baby first, and your chances of divorce are the lowest. The cynicism that which we approach this subject is palpable. In fact, you do your own research. Put a tablet next to where you watch TV or YouTube or whatever it is you're watching these days. And do a chart for and against marriage and find the number of comments, jokes that are against marriage as opposed to for. And I think you'll quickly decide with me the cynicism about a happy marriage is contagious. Even happily married people, they even joke that marriage isn't that cool, isn't that happy. So with all this cynicism and the research in, I want to take you to the book of Ephesians one more time. And I want you to see the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look what he says here. First, he says what I'm calling in verse 21, the Holy Spirit in my marriage. He says these words, beginning in verse 21, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 24 now. But as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Against the cynicism of the day, the Bible gives direct, specific instructions for the roles of husbands and wives. The husband is to take the lead, the wife is to follow. The husband, in verse 21, as well as the wife, is to submit, and then the wife is told to submit again in verse 22. And so you get these directions, these instructions on how to do this. You may be sitting here saying, Pastor, I am single why would this series matter to me? Well, in addition to it being the Word of God, just want to pause there for just a second. In addition to being the Word of God, we all have a stake in marriage. Go to a public school teacher. Take away the background information of every child in that classroom and give him or her two weeks of experiencing those children and then ask that public school teacher which children do you think have both parents in the home and not? And I bet he or she will nail it pretty quickly. We all have a stake in this. You may be single, you may be married. And so one of the pieces you need to be aware of here, if you're married, if you're considered to be married, is the Bible is instructing people who have the Spirit. Let's back up for a second. There are three kinds of people in this room. The first kind of person does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't, you've not come to saving relationship with Christ. You've not repented of your sins. You've not embraced Him. We're glad that you're here. And we hope that you receive Christ before the hour is over. The second group of people are people who know Christ. It's not just you're a church member. It's not that you just know when to stand up or read the right thing. It's that you had a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And the third group of people are very much like the second, only they've been filled with the Spirit. You see, in this room are people who have been filled with the Spirit of God today and those who have not been filled. 
This is not a one-time act. This is a multiple thing. And it comes up because ahead of verse 21 in your Ephesians 5 is this important verse in verse 18. The Bible says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what you need to be aware of is that verse 21, verse 20, and verse 19 are all connected to the filling of the Spirit in verse 18. They're all operating from that. So let me say it a couple different ways. Verse 18 is the source of the water, and everything else in 19 and 20 and 21 are downstream. For those of you who are more superheroes, bat time, bat belt, back in the day when I was a kid, 19, 20, and 21 are connected to the belt of verse 18. We could say it this way, how do I know if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? I know that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit because in verse 19, I sing. It's not just singing any old song. I sing the Lord. I sing with joy. I'm filled with joy because Jesus Christ has taken me as his own. I don't deserve it. How do I know if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit? Because in verse 20, I'm filled with gratitude. Now you should be looking at your Bible to see if I'm making this stuff up. Because in verse 20, it talks about having a gratitude, an attitude of gratitude. And then in verse 21, the third that's more applicable to marriage, the Bible says, how do I know if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit is I submit to one another. So those three traits, you may be a Christian, but you may be filled with yourself rather than filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible here is teaching us if we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, an acronym AGE, A-G-E, A, I have an attitude of joy. G, I have, or verse 20, I have this attitude of gratitude. And then verse 21, I have this submissive attitude to everyone, A-G-E. Now stop for a minute and talk about, think about submission. Is there any hero that you can think of, any cultural icon, that their first thing is, I'm going to submit America is a non-submit place. From the moment we threw that Boston Tea Party to the present, our attitude, we say to the world, ain't nobody going to tell us what to do. And yet, if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, Jesus calls upon us to submit to one another, submit to the governing authorities. In fact, when I think of submission, I think of Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate. Do you remember the story? It's only hours before he's crucified. Pontius Pilate is the representative of the Roman government. The Roman government can stop this whole charade. Talk about an immoral act. Talk about an unjust act. This is the moment. And Jesus won't speak to Pilate. Do you remember this? And Pilate essentially says, my paraphrase, you're not going to speak to me? I'm the one that has the power to release you. And Jesus essentially says back to Pilate, the only power you've got is the power my Father has given you. Jesus submits to someone who's unjust. Jesus submits to someone who's immoral. In fact, there's a legend. It's not true, but it's a legend. It's a picturesque legend of Pontius Pilate. He's in the Himalayas. To this day, his ghost continues to wash his hands, seeking to wash the guilt of the blood of Jesus Christ off. Jesus submits. Listen carefully. If you're going to have power for your marriage or your future marriage, that power comes from the Holy Spirit. 
Marriage is hard. You will be disappointed in marriage. He will disappoint you. If you get rid of the one that you're married to now and change him for the better one that you've already seen this past week or whatever that is in your mind, he will disappoint you. He will belch. He will scratch. He will say things that you cannot believe. She will disappoint you. And if you're going to have the fuel for marriage, you're going to have to turn to above and get your tank filled from the Holy Spirit. Marriages, the power is the Holy Spirit to spirit-filled people coming together. And if you're going to submit, it's going to be a, a spirit other than the American spirit to do it. And you're never more like the devil when you're in rebellion. I want to stop there and make sure you heard that. You're never more like the devil than when you're in rebellion, and you're never more like Jesus when you're in submission. Now, that doesn't mean unquestioned submission, but it does mean you're submit. And the Bible here at the beginning says one of the keys, it just moves on this and speaks on this, and we Americans just want to ignore it. But the Holy Spirit, in my marriage, I'm to submit. Secondly, the Bible says in verse 24, what I'm calling my responsibility for marriage. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, if you're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, and I hope that you are, I hope that you're not a lazy Christian and just looking at the screen. If you're that, that's not a spirit-filled Christian. We put them up here as cheats. But get your own copy of God's Word. In other words, take the one that we've given you there. That's our gift to you. And you're going to notice throughout this section that each of the respective people in the marriage get their own verbs. Now watch carefully. If you're a high school student today, this is what you're being told by secular forces. The genders are interchangeable. The biology doesn't matter. That men can do what women and women can do what men but look at the various verbs. Wives and husbands, they don't get the same verbs. Husbands are to love. Wives are to submit. Husbands are to give. Wives, again, are to respect. They're equally competent before God. They're equally loved before God, but the verbs aren't the same. In fact, in verse 21, the Bible says both genders are to submit. And then it comes back and repeats in verse 22 that the wife is to submit to her own husband. Now, you need to be careful this morning because if you're like most people, you bring a filter to when you read the Bible. If you are a traditionalist, what you just perhaps heard me say is that she does the dishes and you cut the yard. Is that what it says in the Bible? Let me get my glasses out here, make sure I read that. I don't think that in the first century Roman Empire they had yards to mow. You see, you bring a filter to the Word of God. And you've got to be careful with your filter, that you're not just reading what you want to read. And yet the Bible says He is the leader. Now for the next few moments I want to speak again to men. There are problems with women in marriages, but I have learned that if I can get the, the man lined up, if I can get all four tires on his alignment lined up, there's less problems. And some men, when you read this, you act like Tarzan, beat your chest and think, I'm in charge and I get to have my way. One pastor wrote of a, a, a husband who would not let his wife go to the restroom without his permission. 
you, my friend, are a stupid idiot in the name of Jesus. You're not understanding this text. You're not a sergeant. You're not a dictator. You're not to dictate and command with a Bible club. You are to be a servant leader to her. Everything about her submission in verse 22 is voluntary. That's the Greek. That's the language to it. Does she want to yield? It's not a you pounding the kitchen table or the countertop and say, I am in charge around here. Hear it from me as a pastor now. 20, almost 25 years. If you're pounding something, demanding people follow you, you're likely not to have anybody follow you. It's her voluntary yielding. And so the Bible here talks about, I want you to write this next to verse 22, a line, a line of responsibility. You're not beating your chest like Tarzan saying, I'm in charge. There's a line of responsibility as the servant leader, as the man, as the husband. I've had men that I've had the privilege of pastoring tell me, I've never changed a diaper in my life. And I regret that. I've had men tell me that they've never washed a dish in their life. And they regret that. The word line of responsibility here is that men and husbands, you are to lead spiritually. And to lead the marriage spiritually, you have to have a personal relationship, and you're digging in. You're going hard after God. And that looks like consistent Bible reading. And let me give you a number one indicator, whether you have a spiritual passion. The thermostat for your spiritual passion is your prayer life. So if your prayer life is boring and lethargic, if your prayer life would not win a 100-yard dash, much less a marathon, man, you've got to dig in. If you're going to lead us, you've got to be centered and focused. And if you're a high school student thinking about asking out a young lady, you need to be squared away spiritually. If it's important to you as it should be to date a Christian, and you are going to introduce yourself to her father, stepfather, whatever that looks like, and he cares about his daughter, stepdaughter, you better be squared away. I don't mean just a job and a close haircut. You need to know the Word, whatever that looks like for an 18, 19-year-old young man. And you are the leader. You are the line of responsibility, husbands. And so let me ask you something. If you're the leader, what is your vision of your marriage? What is the vision of your family? What is your goal? Well, pastor, I don't have much of a goal. You know, we're in our 60s or 70s now, and my goal is just for us to sit here you know, <laughs> and wait for whatever, okay? Pastor, I, I just got her to say yes. I don't have much of a goal. I hadn't thought much past that, okay? Let me share with you some personal goals through the years. The, I'm, not, I'm not the definitive standard, but these are some for me. I have a goal that I see all three kids lead someone to faith in Christ at some point in my life. I've got three kids. That would be with them as that happened. When I was pastoring a church that was just full of adultery, or it seemed to be full of adultery, I had this goal that I would so treat my daughter's mother, my wife, so that she, my daughter, would want me and her marriage, whatever that looked like. See, a daughter can pick up, they've got like spidey senses. They can figure out what dad is doing and not doing. The boys 
They don't have a clue. They won't have a clue for decades. But she's got spidey senses. She can figure it out. And my goal is to treat my wife so well that I would have my daughter's respect. Get that? This is, these are the kind of goals. Of course, I would rate myself spiritually anywhere from a C to a D to an F. But what is your goal when it comes to your marriage? You've got goals for business. You've got goals for education. You've got goals for your finances. You've got goals for your savings account, your retirement account. If you're coaching a team, you've got goals. Doesn't this matter more than all that? You may be at that place where at your 25th anniversary you want to be together and you want her to love you and him to love you. But you are the leader, Mr. Husband. Maybe there's a day coming when you see grandkids and you want to see all of your grandkids love Christ. Husband, you need to dig in. If you're going to lead spiritually, you've got to be spiritually sound. Wife, let me speak to you for just a second. Just because he's an authority doesn't mean you can just go lazy river when it comes to spiritual things. I remember a lazy river in San Antonio where you just get the tube and you just go around the river. You can't do that. Too many Christians today are doing that. And wife, you cannot do that. In fact, the mirror image to Ephesians 5 is 1 Peter chapter 3. And there the husband doesn't know Christ and the wife does. And the Bible says the wife should submit to the husband and win with a quiet attitude his respect. Look what submission is not. Submission is not giving up on influencing him. You're seeking and praying to win him to faith in Christ. Let me speak to the wives for just a minute. Any form of leadership, if you're leaving, leading a classroom, if you're leading a school, if you're leading a church, a business during this past year or so, it's been difficult. And most of us are near burnout. And if you're leading a family, it's challenging. Ma'am, wife, may I ask you, when's the last time you genuinely told your husband you love him? When's the last time you said that? I share with you a story, and I repeat it from Mother's Day, I shared this. Women's conference in a church, a woman speaker. She said, wives, I want you to take out your phones, and I want you to text your husband that you love him, you genuinely love him. And then I want you to take those phone and I want you to hand it to the person sitting next to you, the lady sitting next to you, and she's going to read for you and her what your husband says in response. And there's, there's some really juicy ones, some good ones. I'll, I'll share with you three, four or five. First, first husband says, I think you have the wrong number. Don't beat around the bush. How much money do you want? <laughs> Another husband said, did you wreck the car? <laughs> and the one that I love the most, he says, your mother's coming to stay with us, isn't she? <laughs> but he needs to feel your love and he needs to feel your respect. Now, he may not be leading right now. But you're not going to criticize him into Jesus. Can I get a witness? You're not going to criticize him into Jesus. You should have found this out in your marriage by this point. Whether you've been married a month, a year, or a decade. 
And so you love him and you respect him. And men, some of you, you realize that she's in high school spiritually and you're in middle school. She's so far ahead of you. And you've just, cop, you've just done a cop-out. You just put your hands down and said, the heck with it. You're like the kid in school that is so far behind that he just doesn't turn, she doesn't just turn anything in, and it's just like it's cool not to do any work in school. Swallow your pride. If she's ahead of you, admit it. But again, you're to set goals, spiritual goals for your family. Because in verse 22, in verse 23, and verse 24, this is a line of responsibility. Admiral Hyman Rickover, known as the father of the nuclear navy, pioneered, designed, built the first nuclear submarines, one of four people to receive two congressional gold medals. Admiral Rickover says this about responsibility, and I quote, responsibility is a unique concept. It can only reside and adhere in a single individual. You may share it with others, but your portion is not diminished. You may delegate it, but it's still with you. You may disclaim it. You cannot divest it of yourself. If you do not recognize it or admit its presence, you cannot escape it. If responsibility is rightfully yours, no evasion or ignorance or passing the blame can shift the burden to someone else. And this last sentence is the best of all. Rickover says, quote, unless you can point your finger at the man who's responsible when something goes wrong, then you've never had anyone really responsible. Former president said, the buck stops here. Husband, this is what you're called to do. Do you remember when uh, the opening chapters of the Bible, Eve ate of the fruit, gave the fruit to Adam? Do you remember that story? And then a few verses later, God comes looking for the couple that's hidden themselves due to sin. Do you remember what he says? He just says, hey, where are y'all? Where are you guys? He says, Adam, where are you? There's a line of responsibility. I just want to ask three challenging questions here to men. If you're leading spiritually, let me ask you, men, does your wife know your testimony? I've told you this before. I've done so many funerals through the years, I can't keep track of them. And I've had so many men pass away. And they'll know your favorite football team, they'll know your favorite rangers and stars and all that stuff. And then when it comes, when I ask, well, what, what would be a verse that, that Scott would want read his funeral? It just gets silent half the time, it just gets crickets. Do they know your testimony? There should be eye rolls when it comes to your story of how you came to faith in Christ. Eye rolls, that repetitive. Second question, have you ever discussed with your wife sharing the gospel with somebody, a neighbor, a parent? Have you two partnered together in personal evangelism? Do you think that's only the reverend's responsibility? Now, you may think I'm talking to you hard, but if I know men, men don't want to have a pansy to lead them. Can I just say that? Coach Joe Allen, who led me in basketball, fingers were pointed in my chest. 
Mays, do not shoot, even if you're open. Do not shoot, Mays. Your job is to rebound, get on the floor. And if that message was not clear, let's run the stairs for the next hour. Finger the chest. So this is you. This is who you're supposed to be, men. I'm putting a finger in your chest. You're supposed to lead like this. Or question. Have the two of you considered a mission trip together? You say, Pastor, how do I start? How do I start with something like this? Well, confess your sin to your wife. Again, I'd rank myself at best to see in this. Oftentimes an F. Confess your sin to your wife. Now, go get some water and revive her. And a couple hours later, the two of you have a discussion about how you could do better. But let me just give you some things. I keep saying these things. I'm a broken record. You're ahead of 97% of men, if you pray out loud, that I've pastored. You're ahead of 97% of men, if you just pray out loud. You're, 100, you're ahead of 107%. There is no such thing as 107%. If you'd read the Bible with her. That's the bar. That's where we are in America. This is the pandemic. This is the pandemic. Put your goals down spiritually. Talk to them about the next generation. Tell them where you've messed up. Encourage them to pick it up from there. And wives, if you've got a parked car, parked cars don't lead. You can't follow a parked car. If you've got a parked car for a spiritual leading husband, let me remind you, words of encouragement, love. I've beat them over the head enough for a lifetime. If you join in that, you may not get a good reaction. This is my responsibility for my marriage. And third, and lastly, I want to remind you in verse 23, his sacrifice for my marriage. The Bible says, because the husband is the head of the wife, is also the Christ is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. No one took greater responsibility than Jesus Christ. And Christ sacrificed for his bride. If you're in Christ today, you're his bride, and he sacrificed for you. And no man can be head of his home who will not submit to Jesus Christ. He is your authority. And today we come before him knowing that he sacrificed for our sins. So would you just bow your head quietly where you are? With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you know already that you're saved, if you know already that you are saved, that you have a relationship, you're confident in your relationship with Jesus Christ, and you have no doubts about it, then I want to invite you to begin to pray for the people on the right and the left of you, in front of you, behind you. Today there are some in this room, not only are you not filled with the Spirit, but you're not filled with Christ. You may be a church member, you may know all the particulars People may be shocked to know that you don't know Christ, but today the Holy Spirit's telling you, you need to receive the Lord Jesus. So you can pray a prayer something like this, dear God, you just pray it quietly where you're seated. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know my sin deserves judgment, but I need mercy. I want to be saved, Jesus. You died to save me. You promised to save me if I would trust you. And I do trust you right now. Pray those words to Jesus. I do trust you right now. 
you telling them, I do trust you right now. I trust you at this moment with all my heart and with all of my mind. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in and forgive me of my sin. Save me and begin to make me the person that you want me to be. And help me never, ever be ashamed of you because you died for me. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, 